Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Ollinger, your host. I'm happy you're here. I'm grateful you're here. I'm excited to be here today because it's a good day. Our guest this week is Allison Schrager, the author of the new book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. But before I tell you more about Allison, I'm going to tell you where you can see me doing comedy soon. June 21st, I will be at the 10 Buck Comedy Show at Highland Ballroom in Atlanta, Georgia. June 26, I'll be performing in a benefit for Jeff Walls of Guadalcanal Diary. He is the former guitarist, co-founder of the band, and I loved that band in the late 80s, Guadalcanal Diary. Look him up on Spotify now. That's June 26 at the Old Fourth Distillery in the Old Fourth Ward of Atlanta, Georgia. June 28th, also in Atlanta, Best of Atlanta Showcase at my home club, the Laughing Skull Lounge. My fun cool club that I get to play in New York City on June 27th is the West Side Comedy Club, where I'll be closing out the MVP show that night, June 27th. I love that club. It's got a special place in my heart because I recorded my first EP, an extended play audio recording at West Side Comedy Club in December, and it was released last week. Don't use the passive voice, Paul. Use the active voice. I released it last week on iTunes to great fanfare. You probably read about it or not. It's also available on Spotify and other places that I haven't discovered yet. Anyway, it's called Alive on the Upper West Side, 29 minutes of fun, a little bit snarky, insightful. I'd like to say intelligent, hopefully intelligent comedy. I hope you check it out. I hope you like it. You can also find it on soundcloud.com. Okay, let's talk about this week's guest, Allison Schrager. Hey, another PhD in like three episodes. I'm talking to a lot of PhDs recently probably more than you. Don't mean to brag, but I've been talking to more PhDs recently than I have since I was in college or in business school, I guess. Anyway, Allison has an undergraduate degree from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and a PhD in economics from Columbia University. She teaches at New York University and lives in New York City. She's also a journalist at Quartz, that is QZ.com, and co-founder of Life Cycle Finance Partners, a risk advisory firm. She's been a regular contributor to The Economist, Reuters, Bloomberg Businessweek, and her writings appeared in Playboy, Wired, National Review, and Foreign Affairs. I had a really fun time talking to Allison today. She's an extraordinarily smart person, and I got to pick her vast brain on many subjects, including how human beings use risk or mitigate risk to help create the outcomes in life that they are looking for. And I found her writing to be enjoyable, humorous, and insightful. Here is Alison Schrager, author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. One reason I think I was so drawn to this story is I have such complicated feelings about that and Dennis because he was a pimp. He, you know, made money off of women selling their bodies, yet mm-hmm. he also provided amazing financial literacy training. Then they explained how all the transactions are negotiated. You're telling me of women in their early 20s negotiating for tens of thousands of dollars with men in their 60s? They're like, yes, every day. And it's interesting. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. The number one lesson, ladies and gentlemen, in podcasting is to turn on the recorder. And I was just reminded of that by my guest, Allison Schrager. Allison, welcome to Crazy Money. 
Thanks for having me. I promise we're only going to do that intro four times. It's, and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you are a Jill of many trades, mm-hmm. economist, journalist, author, and retirement planning specialist. I'm probably not getting all the titles exactly right. Is that, is that close I, enough? i that they're all accurate. Okay. So you've just published a book that's doing very well. And the name of the book is An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. What the heck does that mean? Well, they all might sound really different, but I think they're all connected. And I was really drawn to economics because for me, there were these amazing little parables that helped the world make sense to me. They're these little, I mean, they're told in math, but so once you can get your head around the math, they make a lot of sense. They're these little stories that help you make sense of things. And that's why I was always drawn to economics when I studied it. And for a variety of reasons, I was really drawn to the retirement problem. So when I was thinking about a book, doing storytelling about people made so much sense because a financial model is a parable. So if I could find these stories about people that were more traditional parables, then they were financial models to me. That's why I went to a brothel because I was like, if you're going to do it, find good stories. Go places that interest you or intrigue you or maybe even make you uncomfortable. And so I guess that's what brought me to a brothel. All right. So financial models are parables. So tonight when I get home, I'm going to read my kids the bedtime story, Black Shoals and the Little Sheep. <laughs> I don't know. I just made that up. Okay. So I just wanted everybody out there to know that I know the name Black Shoals. I can't tell you what it does, but I know that it exists. Okay. So you went to a brothel. What did you expect to find there? And what did you find there? I went there the first time not even thinking there'd be a risk story. They invited me a couple of years ago because they have a negotiation training program to teach mm. women how to ask for more money. Really? Yeah. Um, oh, I feel so used. Not that I've ever been to a brothel. Not that I've ever... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so the brothel pitched me some story. I don't remember what. I was like, I, I don't know about this. This isn't my thing. I'm a retirement economist. Uh-huh. I don't know why you're calling me. But then they explained how all the transactions are negotiated. And I was like, well, that's interesting. You're telling me you have women in their early 20s negotiating for tens of thousands of dollars with men in their 60s. They're like, yes, every day. And it's interesting. No one's ever asked about that before because they come here not really knowing their value. So we train them to ask for more. That's crazy. Yeah. So I was like, well, that's a good story. Smart, too. Yeah. I mean, Dennis Hoff was really, you know, I'm always... I think who, who's Dennis? He was the guy who owned the brothels. Right. He owned the Bunny Ranch and mm-hmm. the bigger brothels in Nevada. And you know, one reason I think I was so drawn to this story is I have such complicated feelings about that and Dennis because, you know, he he was a pimp. He you know made money off of women selling their bodies. Yet mm-hmm. he also provided amazing financial literacy training, and was really into goals based investing and setting life goals, and sort of was doing some fairly empowering things in the midst of all of this. Mm. Which you can feel really conflicted about. I feel very conflicted about it, but that's what makes it a good story. That's so interesting because you hear a lot about, in the discussion of the gender wage gap, you hear a lot about women not asking for what they're worth in the marketplace. But in this marketplace, that's an extraordinarily raw place to be negotiating. Well, in so many ways. The sex workers are very keen to point out it's the one industry where they make more than men. But not only that, you think about, I found, I mean, one reason I was drawn to the negotiation there initially was that it's something I struggle with. 
And, you know, because it's nerve wracking when you're going to have to work with someone to negotiate. You're like, we're going to have to have this fairly contentious discussion about money. And then we have to be coworkers or you're going to be my boss. Mm -hmm. You think in sex work, it's all the more charged because you're going to have a fairly contentious negotiation. And then you're going to have sex with this person. (laughs) (laughs) So it's even more intense. So this was a platform for you to discuss risk, though. And what kind of risk? Well, there's all kinds of risk that exists in the field of sex work. There's a lot. And so when I went there, I discovered how the pricing works. And I was shocked at how much more they charge compared to the local illegal markets. Mm Because, you know, you can find sex workers all over the world, especially now that they have the Internet. They advertise on the Internet. It's very easy to find a sex worker. And you pay them a lot less than you do in Nevada. And that seemed surprising to me considering like you have to go all the way to Nevada. Why would you pay a premium for that? And legalization leads to an increase in supply so that price should go down, theoretically. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are more illegal than legal sex workers. Mm -hmm. But I mean, when you're at the brothel, you can choose between all these women. Like if you order someone online, then, you know, you're kind of stuck with that person. As opposed to in the brothel, you know, they, and this sounds terrible, but they all line up when you walk into the door and you you pick the one. And if you can't come to a decision with them, they walk you to the bar and you can choose another one. In fact, one time I was there and this man literally went through every woman at the Sagebrush Ranch trying to talk her down to like $200 an hour. When I said the the mean price, I say in the book is about $1,400 an hour. Wow. And, you know, he finally like. What's the median price? It's a little bit lower. Actually, I think, I'm sorry. I think 1600 is the mean, 1400 is the median. What's the mode? About 1000 All right. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So this is for especially the higher end service, which is GFE. But yeah, so this man went through everyone trying to talk him down. No one would have any takers. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it goes to me, because I'm just sitting there like typing away on my laptop, like dressed like not a sex worker, because most of them wear their underwear during the day. And he's just, just like, all right, want to give it a shot? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like most women are offended if someone mistakes them for a sex worker. I'm not. You know, you hang out in brothels. That's going to happen. Yeah. But it was like, it was the first time I'd been mistaken for a sex worker. And I was his last choice. Dude, I have a PhD from Columbia. <laughs> Actually, a couple of women there do have PhDs and they do include that on their bios because they say it draws in a particular clientele. I bet. So risk. So we were talking about risk. Oh, yeah. So that price, that price markup. Mm-hmm. I discovered is a risk premium because all men who visit sex workers are looking to avoid a Robert Kraft situation. Probably so. And if you go to a brothel, you know, there's really no repercussion. No one ever knows you're there. There's Theoretically. Yeah. I mean, even you can charge on your credit card. It's some innocuous thing. The women are all screened for diseases and you're never going to be caught by the police because it's perfectly legal. Right. And so what they're doing is the brothels are able to charge this huge markup because they're alleviating people's risk. So risk is kind of a luxury good, sort of, or it's a product that you can pay for. Yeah, exactly. And that's like the reoccurring theme in finance, right? Is that there's a price on risk. And if you pay for it, you can reduce risk. You put yourself in all different kinds of situations to analyze risk and what it means to people's investment strategies, but also to their lives. Tell us about some of the other places you went. I spent uh, a couple time, like, uh, actually it was a while because it took a while to get in with them with the paparazzi in New York, mm-hmm. uh, stalking celebrities. I went to a big wave surfing risk conference. Yes, that was in Hawaii, right? Yes. That, that was just a boondoggle. Clearly, you, <laughs> this is all a, a contrivance to get a free trip to Hawaii, or a, a right-offable trip to Hawaii. I'm not going to deny that was the motivation. 
and I was quite pleased when I got there that this actually was one of the easiest chapters to write. And that I'm sitting in this like windowless conference room in the North Shore of Oahu with all these like incredibly handsome tan men. And we're looking at PowerPoint slides with a lot of math. So it's like any other pension conference in a lot of ways. And they're actually having one of the best discussions on systemic risk that I'd ever heard. Right. And I'm like, wow, I really did just come here because, you know, if you're writing a book, why not go to Hawaii? And this is actually a really important risk discussion they're having. The risk that they're trying to minimize is sharks and drowning and what else? Dying. Dying. <laughs> <laughs> All of those uh, sharks and, and drowning are leading causes of dying for surfers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a serious risk. So what did you learn from these guys? First of all, I mean, I said I was surprised how easy it, it fit. Like I learned, you know, they're they're having this ongoing debate, which is the same debate we're having everywhere, but particularly in finance, which is as you come up with new technology, which is in theory supposed to lessen your risk, like all of these fancy derivatives that people are always coming up with. Mm-hmm. What happens when you can use them to take even bigger risks? And not only that, what if those bigger risks you're taking poses harm to others? Mm. And where does resp- personal responsibility lie? How do you regulate that? And who should be regulating that? Right. So right. that is well, that was like a big topic of discussion at the annual big wave risk assessment group summit. Because every new technology in surfing raises these issues. I spent a little, uh, quite a bit of time with a man named Brian Kiolana, who brought jet skis to big wave surfing. Yep. Which are very serve a very similar function to derivatives and that they are technically insurance. And that if you wipe out, it's there to rescue you. That was their original intent. But you can also use them to lever up and be pushed on bigger waves. So jet skis could bring down bare sterns if if levered at a high enough rate. Totally. <laughs> this is where you spend your time. Yeah, You put tons of thought and a year or more of writing into this. What does risk reward mean to you personally? It, to me, it means opportunity. I mean, your life will not move forward unless you take risks. But... I think where we fall down the most is just not having a well-defined sense of reward or even a well-defined sense of risk. I mean, there's so much science and ways of understanding risk, which I don't think people, you know, don't get the opportunity to learn about or really get an opportunity to think through. Yet, I think there's something innate in all of us to take risk and take risk in a smart way and manage risk in a smart way because we do it instinctively all the time in some areas of our lives, but then get totally overwhelmed by it in others. What would an example of that be? Taking risk well or totally getting overwhelmed by it? Well, either and of not sort of being aware of where you're taking those risks. For instance, like most people I know, you know, just driving to the airport have like their backup plan, another route they go or a particular time they always leave to make sure they get there on time. That's actually might be a very clever risk strategy that they're doing. But really, like the same principles could be applied to investing their 401k plan. But they don't see that. In what way? Well, you want to think about what is your goal? You want to think about how much risk are you willing to bear? You're thinking, you know, where's their opportunity to hedge? Where's their opportunity to insure? You talk about hedging. Define hedging and then let's talk about how we can hedge or where we should hedge in our personal lives. So hedging is, well, technically in finance, a slightly different definition than I think it's used often colloquially, which is if you have, say, a risky portfolio, say, a mutual fund of stocks, Hedging would be diversifying some of that into a risk-free asset, like a treasury bill, depending on you know your investment horizon. Mm-hmm. So all it is is finding that balance between risky and risk-free. And what it does is risk is a distribution of all the things that could happen, the whole range of things, is you give up upside in exchange for reducing downside risk. Mm-hmm. So that's the trade-off. You t- effectively, you're just taking less risk. 
Right. And you can put some calls to collar different stock positions and all that kind of stuff to say, I'm going to forego the upside, but I'm going to make sure that I have at least this much to live on over the next however many years I'm going to be alive. Yeah, though often puts and calls are used more as insurance. Mm-hmm. So you give up, You you get, in that case, it's interesting, you give up downside or you pay someone to take on your downside, but you keep the upside less the premium. What lessons did you learn from the surfers and the paparazzi that we can, and the others and the sex workers and the brothels that have practical applications for everyday folks? Well, I think it is, I said, thinking about hedging, thinking about when you're taking a risk, you know, you don't have to think about it in this binary way, either I take a risk or I don't. It's actually thinking, well, how much risk do I want to take to get exactly what I need? Mm -hmm. So in the way pension funds are supposed to invest, although they don't often, is they're supposed to take just as much risk as they need to meet their liabilities and then lock in. So you can think about risk as how much risk do I need to get what I want? Mm -hmm. And just finding that exact right balance between risk and reward. Like, for instance, the um, paparazzi, they face incredibly variable income. You can imagine, like they're wandering the streets of New York and maybe they're going to see a celebrity canoodling with some lover they're not supposed to. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a game changer for them. They might make (laughs) half a million dollars for that. (laughs) But odds are they're just going to be like stalking Gigi Hadid getting a cup of coffee. Sure. Which is going to get like $5. And, you know, even still, they better make sure they get the right shot of that. Their income is so variable that to manage that risk, what they do is they form alliances with other paparazzi. And they share, it depends on the agreement. It could be tips. It could be royalties. It's whatever agreement they have. And so that is giving up some upside, but they get more security in exchange for that. Of course, they're always cheating on these alliances. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, they always are falling apart. But in theory, if they could find a way to enforce the alliances, they would face more predictable income. These are loosely coalesced OPEX for the paparazzi world. They are. They're never legal, although they always get named. They get named? They get named. Yeah. What are the cooler names of the paparazzi? So the guy I I spent time with, uh, Santiago Baez, he had an alliance that lasted 10 years, which is like unheard of for such a long-running alliance. He's so proud of it. I think it's even his social media bio. And he called it Paco, Paparazzi Company. And Mm -hmm. he's like to say it's like the jeans. And I thought, you know, this is when you know you're like this nerdy PhD out with a paparazzi. He pointed out when we were in front of the Bowery Hotel one day, that alliance, they call call themselves the Bowery Boys Mm -hmm. because they're always in front of the Bowery Hotel. Right. And I'm like, that's so funny because they're all immigrants. And, you know, aren't the Bowery Boys initially a nativist gang? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what are you talking about, loser? (laughs) You're making obscure references. I love it. Was it creepier? I shouldn't say creepier. Was it less comfortable hanging out in a brothel or hanging out with a bunch of paparazzi? The brothel is more uncomfortable. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. I mean, mean, they were always very welcoming because I I don't want to say they weren't. Dennis was incredibly hospitable. I remember... The first night I arrived in the brothel, and I said, it is such a surreal experience. You're there, and just, I mean, I, I totally like, I totally support legal sex work, but it is weird seeing women in their underwear selling their bodies up close. Yes. Like, it's just weird. But Dennis, like, invites me in, and, like, we have ice cream together, and just watching. As you do at a brothel. <laughs> watching what flavor did you have? Coffee. Um, <laughs> and... You're just watching these women line up and getting picked out of a lineup in their underwear, is it? It never felt comfortable. As opposed to, the, you know, with the paparazzi, like, would wait, like, maybe three or four hours for someone to come out. And I'll just get bored and go home. Right. And they'd always be surprised. They're like, Gigi hasn't come out yet. I'm like, I know, but I'm here for you. And you told me your story. So right. I can just go. Uh, well, you miss the big part of their, the exciting part of their career. Although I got to admit, like, I'd read tabloids and see pictures when I was waiting, what happened after, and I'd get serious FOMO. Mm. I'm like, I should have been there. You could have seen Gigi Hadid in the flesh. 
I've seen her before. Oh, you know, I was seeing Michael Cohen go to a jail the other day, mm-hmm. and they had all these paparazzi surrounding him, and I knew a bunch of them. Oh, that's funny. You take these uh, parables and you relate them to investment strategies. And we don't talk investment strategy because there's a lot of other great podcasts that cover how to make money, how to invest money. What I'm more interested in is how do we take these lessons to live better life? So how do humans get probability wrong? Well, we often just don't internalize or have meaning. I mean, we do a lot of wrong things. Like for for instance, we tend to overestimate confidence and assume that something that is risky isn't risky. So I think for that parable, I spent time with Sam Antar, the mastermind of the Crazy Eddie scheme. And I spoke to a lot of other criminals in addition to him. And they all knew it didn't matter what their story was. Can you summarize the Crazy Eddie scheme oh, for us? It's such a good story. It is a good story. I liked it. <laughs> so are you from the New York area? Do you recall Crazy Eddie? I, I know of the legend, but I did not. I grew up down south. So if you grew up in the tri-state area in the 80s or 70s, there was this electronic store called Crazy Eddie. Mm-hmm. And they had these ads that were everywhere. And it was, I mean, even if you didn't grow up in the Northeast, you might have been exposed to it because it was on Saturday Night Live. It was on right. Splash. And it was this- Splash. Yeah, remember the, the, the Tom Hanks movie? <laughs> yeah, of course, yes. It's in that. And it, they, they had this local DJ shouting about electronics and talking really fast. And they were everywhere. And everyone remembers this. Even when I bring up Crazy Eddie, anyone who grew up anywhere around here is like, oh yeah. And it's been a long time. But it turns out, the whole time, this was one big fraud. Mm-hmm. It started in the 70s, and they went into, as the Antar family went into this electronics business with a sole intent of skimming taxes. So they underreported sales and kept the difference and didn't pay their taxes. Wait, you're supposed to pay taxes? <laughs> well, not according to the Antars. It's a big pyramid scheme, or uh, is it a, it's not a pyramid scheme, it's just a tax well, avoidance. Initially. But then they're like, you know, they made like $7 million doing this, which isn't bad back then, but they were like, we think we can get more. So they hatched this scheme to take their tax fraud business public, like nice. sell shares nice. on the stock market of their tax fraud scheme. And then they were like, well, to drive up the IPO price, we should look like our profits are growing. So they started increasingly reporting more and more of their sales. Mm. So it looked like profits were going up. And then eventually they ran out of that. So they started laundering the money that they'd skimmed over the years and brought it back to inflate their profits. Right. So they went from doing tax fraud to securities fraud. And I was like talking to Double down. Sam Antar, who masterminded this whole thing. I was like, you know, that seems like a... In the meantime, they decide to have the most uh, prevalent ads of the decade. Something people remember 40 years later. I'm like, that seems like maybe a bad call. Right. All of this. Right. Why would you take a criminal enterprise public? So you could be scrutinized by the SEC. <laughs> and I'm like, that seems like that's destined to blow up. And of course it was. They were, um, someone, uh, it was a merger, took over the company and uncovered it was a big fraud and they went to prison, except for Sam who sold out his family. And he was like, well, you know, we figured we were so good at tax fraud, we could get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just saw him the, a couple weeks ago and he was like, he still maintains this was a reasonable decision. And it's not just them. I spoke to criminals in all areas, all socioeconomic backgrounds, and they all have the same story, which is, well, I did a crime and I got away with it. So I thought that meant I could get away with an even bigger crime. So they underestimate the probability of getting caught. Totally. They all do. And they also infer serial correlation where there is none. Like because What does that I, mean? 
they assume that because that, that the two events are related, like because they can do tax fraud, they can also do securities right, fraud. And right, this okay. isn't any more risky. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like uh, the other example of assuming false serial correlation is if you're playing poker and hand after hand's a winner. Right. You assume that I'm somehow they're, roll, yeah, right. they're somehow related mm-hmm. when they're not. Overconfidence can lead us to make bad decisions. Exactly. Because we totally underestimate the risk. And that definitely has implications in one's investing life. Not to say we can't talk about investing, but mm-hmm. if I think I'm smarter than the market, I'm going to go in and push all my chips into the into some stock that, that I got a tip on and I'm going to lose 99% of the time. Totally. So it's better to just sort of invest in index fund and, and, and sort of look at the odds. The odds are you're going to do better if you just invest in an index fund. And the way you can think about risk literacy, which is making probabilities more salient, is to think in terms of frequencies instead of probabilities. What do you mean by that? Instead of saying 1%, say 1 in 100. And the research shows that when you think in terms of natural frequencies, people actually make decent risk decisions. So you know, in terms of the investment, think about the five stocks you've picked and how they underperform the S&P. <laughs> like, think about things in their natural state. Or, you know, for the Antars, maybe they should have looked at the, you know, the history of people trying to do securities fraud. <laughs> Usually it doesn't go well. You know their names because they were all caught. Yeah. How can diversification be applied to my personal life? You know, all different ways. I think dating is sort of the, always the natural way you know i when i was it got cut from the book but i decided to reread the rules that dating book from the 90s Uh do you remember it i i do not it was again another cultural touch point because i mean it set off this wave of of anger from feminists because it was like you know how to catch a man by like pretending to i I don't know not be very smart or something although i read it and actually a lot of the advice did hold up Uh and one of them is is i mean it sounded a little extreme of keep dating other men until like you're engaged right it might be a bit much. Optionality. Yeah, but they, they're not wrong in that the whole idea of diversification is you can get more for less. Like if risk is the cost of getting more, you can get more for taking less risk. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, if you date around, you don't get overinvested in someone too early before you know them. And you also get to get a sense of who you are and what you want. And you also have more confidence so you can be your best self. So, I mean, they might be a little extreme, but the idea of diversifying your dating life isn't necessarily the worst idea. So dating around might lower your risk, but sleeping around could increase your risk. Uh, so diversification in one's sexual life probably isn't the best strategy to follow. Dating life, but you can let people buy you dinner. <laughs> you know? No harm there. Should I play the lottery? No. Why not? Well, the odds are you are not going to win. And I said, it's interesting. This is another way of messing with people's probability perceptions is, you know, the lottery commission, when you think when you're buying the ticket, there's that sign that says, if you don't, you can't win if you don't play. Technically true. But statistically not true. But statistically zero and point one in a gazillion. Sure. It's not statistically different. You're the brainiac economist statistician. Okay. I'm not. But is it not true? that there is a certain binary element in buying a lottery ticket where you there's a zero to one thing. And it's not zero to one, mm-hmm. but it's it's I can't win or I can win even if my chances are minuscule. I, I, and my expected value is always negative. Yes. Well, but it's not even expected value. There's no, statistically, it's insignificant, the difference between 0.1 in a gazillion and zero. Okay. But they, they make it seem bigger. They open up that idea of possibility. Right. You know, they trot out the winner, and he looks like a regular guy. The gas station where you buy it has, like, we had a winner. All of that does is make it seem like it's more probable than it is. Right. 
But really, they should trot out the millions of people who bought a ticket and did not win. Dennis Miller had this bit a long time ago, actually. He says, uh, have you ever seen a group photo of the Publishers Clearinghouse winners? Uh He goes, and you thought there were a lot of zeros in the prizes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dennis, for loaning me your joke. Okay, break down the risks of taking a cruise for me. On the one hand, it seems like, you know, I think one of the reasons why cruises are so successful is, you know, they can provide a vacation at scale. And that, you know, you get to see a lot of places, you get all your food taken care of, you don't have to worry that reservations are going to be full, rental cars are going to break down, your kids have something fun to do while Mm -hmm. you have something fun to do. But there's this tremendous tail risk. What does tail risk mean? So tail risk is this remote but bad thing happening. Mm-hmm. So like people would say like the 2008 financial crash was like a tail risk because, you know, stocks falling 40% is unusual. And with cruises, that could be, you know, a poop cruise type situation mm-hmm. or just norovirus. Yes. So a poop cruise is where a black swan takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> exactly. So you're talking about tail risk. You're talking about like you're taking a safe bet on some level, but there's a small percentage chance of something or a one in a thousand chance since we're talking about, mm-hmm. what did you call that? Numerical? Uh, tail risk? No, but you said before, don't talk in terms of percentages, talk in terms oh, of- Oh, frequencies. Frequencies. Okay. So there's a one in a thousand chance that I'm going to get stuck on one of these sinking poop cruises. Yeah. But you know, when people see it on TV, it becomes super salient. But the thing is, you're giving up something too, even if the cruise does well. I mean, it's way cooler to take your kids camping on the beach in Bali, but that's work. And, right. And there's risks of all these things can go wrong. So why do people do it? Is this why cruises are packed with boring people? Well, no, I think a lot of... I don't know. I've never been on a cruise. That's just my that's only, just my bias. I only went on one and it was in a so-so experience, but Arnold Donald, the CEO of Carnival, insists mm-hmm. there's a cruise for everyone. Yes. He's like, it might be on a little boat in Antarctica, but there's a cruise for you. He's an interesting cat. How do you find his way into that job? Interesting story. He's not the sort of CEO people normally talk about because he... He's very cautious. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we always hear about the CEOs who take these huge risks and like are rewarded, but he sort of always lived this sort of very cautious life. He's from the Ninth Ward of New Orleans, came from a poor family, grew up under segregation, but sort of was always this sort of lived this cautious life. He, you know, he studied, I think, two degrees. I think it was like engineering and economics and then was an executive at Monsanto and sort of very studiously climbed the ladder. And then retired young and was on the board of Carnival and they offered him the job. Mm. But he's always hedging. That's the thing. He never takes big risks. Like even becoming like an executive at Monsanto, you think he could have been an entrepreneur. You know, he he was told his whole life that he could do anything. Right. Yet he always kind of went the safe way. But I mean, he always took that little bit of risk. And that's what he had. He's a good hedger. Even Carnival right now is like rolling out this very fancy technology where they try to anticipate what you're going to enjoy doing. It's some AI powered thing, very fancy thing. And he made this big splash about it, but then he only put it on one boat. Right. To test it out first. For years. Oh, really? Yeah. Was that because it didn't work or because people didn't like it or what? Well, just because it's new. Huh. And he didn't want any bugs. Right. So he kind of is like someone who like goes big, but then hedges a lot. Mm. But that's the secret of his success. So it's not as flashy as this like big, I'm taking a huge risk and betting it all kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But it is this sort of very steady, methodical hedging. Speaking of careers, one thing you talk about is the first step in risk assessment is knowing what you want. And that staying in a suboptimal job 
is actually riskier than venturing out mm -hmm. and gambling on the marketplace. It depends on what your goals are. If a suboptimal job is giving you, you know, a lot of time off for your family and that's where you want to be, then, I mean, that could be a fine choice. But if you want your career to move forward, then you do want to take that risk because a suboptimal job where you're not learning or growing, especially suboptimal jobs often are companies that maybe aren't doing so well. Mm -hmm. You know, you could find yourself out of a job and you find your skills have gone stale, your network has gone stale. But the thing is, you have to really know what you want out of a job and where you want it to go. Because I, I wouldn't recommend... You know, if a job's not going well, you just are like, quit and don't know what you want. But if you do know what you want, it can be risky staying in a suboptimal job. You've talked to some very interesting folks who've taken some risks in their life. Tell me about H.R. McMaster. He was in the news today, I think. Was he? Yeah. He made a, a comment about people in the administration. Uh-oh. Yeah. But he's, and he said he, he is someone who definitely, that meant something because he's a very interesting risk taker. In what way? Well, I think people don't realize before he joined the Trump administration, he was known as like a risk scholar. Like he's a very serious historian. And what he does is he studied situations where people defy their orders because they thought it was the right thing to do. Because mm -hmm. there's this constant tension in the military and honestly everywhere of, you know, we want to plan out our risks. We want to reduce our risks by having everything planned out. And the military loves to do this because... It's one, cheaper, and two, they think fewer people are going to die. Right. Both good, well, both good. good things. Yes. Um, that's funny when you're, that's how you measure your downside risk. I mean, yeah. that's pretty hardcore. They have all these very complicated risk models where, yeah, they, they figure out in terms of casualty, in terms of property being destroyed, even in terms of killing civilians on the other side. The thing is, war never goes according to plan. Right. It's so unpredictable. So HR became famous initially when he was a young colonel in the first Iraq war, when he defied his orders, he was taking on Saddam's Republican Guard. It went really well. He was only supposed to go so far. And then he went another extra three kilometers because he's like, it's the right thing to do. I need to capitalize on my gains here. And he says, if I hadn't done that, they would have reformed and launched a counterattack. Although to this day, it's still a very controversial decision because you're supposed to follow the plan. You know, they have these things planned out to minimize risk. And he took this risk on the fly because... You know, you can plan, the best risk models in the world are a plan, but sometimes things go different than you think and you have to know when to abandon that plan. And that takes having a certain amount of flexibility built in so you can change things up. So this is, I think, the big question that, like, you know, faced by the Pentagon or military anywhere is how do you build in a plan but also build in just enough flexibility? What lessons can individuals take from H.R. McMaster's risk-taking experience? I think it is like plan, but never get yourself too committed. And in personal finance, that would be don't take on too much debt because mm. debt gives you no flexibility. Right. And this is what brings down, you know, fin financial firms, too, is they lever up. Right. They have all these risk models of how things are going to go. I think I actually saw this on Billions the other night. <laughs> exactly. I, I was thinking of HR exactly when they're like, well, let's lever up and then we'll just hedge all our downside risk or yeah. insure it. I'm right. like, it does, it does not work that way. Because you have all these models that are going to predict every market thing you can think of. This happened to LCCM, my mentor's hedge fund. Long-term capital management. Exactly. But then, you know, Russia devalues its currency and you'd not see that one coming. Right. And all of a sudden, Whoops, they didn't call all those things that you insured are, you know, you did not insure for that thing that you never saw coming. And if you have a lot of if you're carrying a lot of debt, you still have to make that debt payment. Correct. As an individual, I mean, when I was 24, I was loaded down with credit card debt mm -hmm. and I'm like, I have no flexibility. I owe the bank 
the first ten percent of my paycheck every two weeks. Yeah, so you couldn't that aff- sucks. You couldn't afford to like work at a startup where you might lose your paycheck for. Which, I mean, you just it locks you in. Right. But on the other hand, you know, if you load up on debt, you know, you that you have all this money, you can invest in stuff. So it's the trade off. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like this is why the military finds planning and lack of flexibility so seductive too. It's cheaper. You get more for less. You could just send a drone in to do your fights, and no one, at least that on your side, dies. But there's other hidden costs to doing that. When you're watching Billions and other shows with your background, do you have trouble with the willing suspension of disbelief when you hear mathematically incorrect type of writing? They're not that bad on Billions. I think they have some people working on it, but I was sort of shocked. At one point, one of the characters said, I don't need to stay here. I'm going to go to the University of Chicago and learn from Gene Fama how to trade. And I was like, Gene Fama would not teach you how to trade. He'll he'll teach you to go into index funds. Koppelman likes to make the most obscure references in every element of Mm -hmm. pop culture and academia. He's Mm -hmm. he's pretty funny in that way. I know, but Gene Fama's a hardcore efficient markets guy. Right. Like If you want to learn how to run a hedge fund, that's not the guy to learn Uh, from. That Gene Fama. Come on. (laughs) There's another person that you profiled in the book, and it's interesting because there's a lot of talk about the future of education, how valuable it may be, the cost of education. And you talk about a very successful executive who's from Atlanta, Mm -hmm. Kat Cole. What trade-offs did she make? Well, she dropped out of college to work at Hooters. Right. And by the time that's she, what I'm going to encourage my daughter to do. Yeah. Well, she forget those books, honey. Go get a job at Hooters. But she actually had an incredible career arc. She did, and I don't think she would recommend most people do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was in a very particular position. They were offering her an opportunity to fly around the world and set up. I mean, she was still an hourly employee, but you know, she was looking at taking on a lot more debt. And someone was offering her. I mean, she didn't know what the path was. But she felt like this was going somewhere. And as she also, I think the untold side of her story is she retained a lot of optionality. And that even when she left Hooters, even when she got into the corporate track training program, Mm -hmm. she was always taking classes on the side. Early days of online learning. That's right. Because she always retained the option of going back. And in the end, she did get an MBA. Summarize her career trajectory for us, if you would. She starts at Hooters as a, I think, 18, 19 year old waitress, and she was just really good at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, she just had a ton of initiative. If something needed to be done, she was there. She was on it. And she was from a very modest financial background. Exactly. She, her father, I think, was a white collar professional, but he was an alcoholic. So her mother left him with three daughters and no way to support herself and really grew up in poverty. Mm-hmm. But as a nine-year-old was running the household when her mother was busy working. Right. So she, I think this is where she got her initiative and ability to just take control of chaotic situations. So this really paid off as a Hooters waitress. So then they started flying her all around the world to set up new Hooters franchises mm-hmm. or to train people as they were setting them up. And she was having a great time, but she was also blowing off college where she, I think, had this very sort of stable idea that she was going to become a corporate lawyer or an engineer or something. Right. But she was failing her classes because she was never there. So she made this decision of, I'm going to drop out of college and I'm going to do this thing at Hooters. I'm getting to go all over the world. And her mother was just like, this is a really risky thing. It's always been my dream you go to college. I worked so hard to get you there. Mm-hmm. She's like, I didn't even think about it for a second. She's like, this is right for me. Of course, she said she doesn't say it often, but she did also keep up some correspondence on the side. A couple of years later, Hooters put her on their executive track. She took a pay cut because she was doing a lot as an hourly employee. But I think she was making like then like $20,000, so like 20000 less than she was before. But she climbed the corporate ladder. And by the time she was 30, she finally left Hooters and ran Cinnabon. So is that a probability game? And how would you 
I mean, I'm trying to get my head around this. So what advice would you give to the 19-year-old mm-hmm. out there who's sitting there thinking, well, if I continue on this education track at $65,000 a year for a private college or more and $25,000 a year for a public college, is it a better bet to go down the traditional path or to follow your gut? If you're that 19-year-old and a large company is offering you an amazing opportunity, mm-hmm. then it might be. But I don't think most 19-year-olds get that option. <laughs> they don't get also, I mean, you're betting that that one option is going to pay off. What education does is give you a lot of options. So you have that degree. I mean, Kat did take a big bet that Hooters would go somewhere for her, and it did. Right. As I said, she was always prepared to go back to school, which I think is fairly critical. You know, unless someone's handing you a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I think you see this a lot with college basketball players. They often don't finish. And that's not necessarily, they get a lot of flack for that. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad decision. Because if someone's offering you, you know, a multi-million dollar contract when you're 20. And you're risking injury for another two years. Those are just sort of like more extreme examples. And you have somebody tomorrow or next year will pay you $5 million. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, hey, in three or four years or 10 years, you know, maybe you'll be one of our senior managers. Yeah. So... You had to face some of these own choices in your own educational journey. How did you find your way to getting a PhD in economics? I always loved economics. I said from the get-go, I always just entranced from the beginning with economic models, which for me were these little keys or maps of understanding how the world worked. I decided to do a PhD anyway. I had no math training, which was insane because it's a fairly quantitative program. What was your undergrad in? It was an econ, but I didn't really study math on the side. How did you major in econ without doing any math? You do. I went to the UK where the program's a little different. They don't have calculus in the UK? They do, but they didn't teach us that. Teach us it. So I somehow managed never to take calculus. Right. And go into a quantitative PhD, mm-hmm. which I don't recommend. I mean, that is not, not a good risk. Because you still have to learn the math. Oh, to not study math, then go into the... I see, yeah. Yeah. So you, you're getting a PhD, but you didn't have a background in math. So I had to teach myself all the math on the side. Wow. Which was not fun <laughs> uh, at all. That was your side hustle? Yeah, I, would, <laughs> I, I didn't sleep. Pythagoras? Yeah, I would just, I had this stack of math textbooks that were as high as my bed. Mm-hmm. And I would just stay up all night working my way through all of them. Party. Yeah, I had a really fun 20s. <laughs> and not only that, I still managed to fail all my exams because, you know, you're learning a lot. Intellectually, it was the most impressive thing I've ever done. Yeah, you're still taking exams that are scaled, and the guy next to you is Korean math champion. Right. So, like, the fact you learned how to do an integral last night, even if you learned it really well, it's mm-hmm. still not going to be as good. So that guy's a math whiz, and you're learning calculus on Khan Academy. Yeah. <laughs> you find yourself at Columbia getting your PhD in economics. Yeah, but the thing is, it was hard. So I figured it must be worthwhile. I should hope so. You kind of, I think we all make this mistake. I figured because it was hard, it must have a payoff, right? Because mm, nothing, mm. if something's this hard, there must be something great waiting for me if I can get through this. Yeah, that's how I feel about comedy right yeah. now. <laughs> so, you know, you keep pushing and pushing. And not only that, I squeaked through. And then I was like, well, because everyone thinks I'm bad at math. I'm going to do an insanely quantitative dissertation just mm-hmm. to prove right. to that Korean guy that I'm as good as he is. Uh-huh. So I did this insanely quantitative dissertation, way more than it needed to be, mm-hmm. and spent like my entire 20s alone in the library solving a math problem. What was the math problem you were solving? It was um, quantifying risk that was different between defined benefit and defined contribution pension plans. Okay. And it was this numeric simulation that was like 4,000 lines of code, and I'd never programmed before to make it all more fun. I go through this, this is like six years of my life. I have no fun. I said, all I do is study math for six years, having not been a particularly quantitative person before mm-hmm. and never having shown any exceptional math ability. Right. 
And then I go to my job interviews to be an economics professor. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to be here. They figured because it was hard, there'd be this payoff. I never really thought through that the payoff was to be a professor. And I never really realized until I went to professor interviews, I'm like, I have no interest in doing this. But when you defended your dissertation, did it have the emotional payoff? Did you get satisfaction out of proving that you could do it? No, I had a very contentious defense because they were because I didn't have a job and that was kind of the the main <laughs> the, the over the big issue during my defense was like they're like they, they have to place you as the job of your committee. Yes, and especially you know I was as a native speaking woman in economics with a popular dissertation like this was not good for anyone. Most of my defense was like this is really a big problem because mm. I graduated. The committee was saying you're a problem because you didn't have a job that they could be proud of. Yeah. Well, fuck them. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, I think we're all in good terms now, but it wasn't a happy experience. Did you get the satisfaction? Did that Korean guy, did he respect you in the end? Or did you feel like that you got the respect that you, maybe I'm getting a no from you to that question. It, over time and not in one moment, uh-huh. I was so like embittered. I went to the economist. I was like, I'm like, forget this all. I'm going to like do something where there's no math. I'm going to be a writer with a quantitative PhD and no writing ability Yeah. while journalism is imploding. So maybe... <laughs> <laughs> what an excellent career choice. Yeah, I was, I was kind of irrational. So you made the choice to go through a PhD program, the expected outcome of which is that you'll be a, an economics professor. Mm-hmm. And you get there and you're like, this isn't the route for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's funny, you know, in just this week's episode, which will be a few weeks ago when this one comes out, one of my guests had a medical degree, mm. a surgery residency, a fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery from Stanford, then decided she didn't want to be a surgeon. Wow. So she went and got her MBA. And it's it's interesting that, you know, when you go to study surgery, the expected outcome is that you're going to be a surgeon. You had your own version of this, and you ended up writing at The Economist. Yeah, and I could see why I should do that as a sh- woman. Yes, she, it was. Well, she, it is. She yes. did the most competitive, difficult thing in yeah. her field, which yeah. is probably why, like, similar to what I did. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. if I do the hardest thing, then wonderful things will happen, not thinking, well, what is this hard thing supposed to bring? So what does that say about your risk profile or the lessons that individuals should take from your book? Was that you should, if you take a risk, you should really know what it's going to get you. Yes. Don't just take a risk for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it turned out to work out. I went to The Economist. And they taught me how to write, which was a great gift. And then... Uh, Robert Merton, who is this famous finance professor, found my dissertation because I always had a good paper. Mm-hmm. That hard work paid off that way. And he was like, I think we should work together. I'll teach you finance. And that's when I learned risk by science. Oh, wow. That's- Where's Dr. Merton? Yeah, he's at MIT now, but we uh, work together in the, in, in the private sector because we were both interested in the retirement problem. Mm-hmm. And he taught me all the finance I know now. Would you consider yourself to be risk averse? No. Not at all. I mean, look at me. As I said, I, I still have this degree I could use so sensibly, yet I decided to write a book. Well, what does sensibly mean? Well, you know, I could I could be on billions. Well, not as an actor, but like I could do a job like that, maybe. Yeah. And you know, maybe do you have a money. desire to do that? No, but uh, I would if I was more sensible. Well, do you think it's money that motivates the hedge fund math geeks, or is it the complexity of what they're trying to get done? Well, both. And I like complexity in math. Clearly. Yeah. So I think it's both. You could like the complexity of math and make money. Right. But which would you get the most satisfaction from, do you think? As much as I like doing math, I think I like stories more and I like people more, which Mm -hmm. is why I can't seem to quit journalism and why I wanted to write the book. I also find complex math problems very satisfying. Mm -hmm. 
and you know they get paid a lot of money and they get that satisfaction right right so that's not nothing no it's not nothing not nothing at all i mean it's not for me but like sometimes i'm like i should feel that way but sometimes people go like, oh, these these hedge fund people, they should be, you know, these sometimes your professors talk about like, well, hedge funds should be they should pay more taxes. or It's like, hey, you know what? If you wanted to do that, mm-hmm. you could go do that. So why are you bagging on them for the choices they made to apply their brain in the way they wanted to apply it? Totally. I feel the same way. It's, we're all doing this voluntarily. Yeah. Well, I mean, not everyone, like not every, but you know. No, I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Not everybody has the same opportunities. Life isn't 100% fair from an opportunity standpoint. But for those people who have worked their way into Ivy League professorships, they could have done whatever the hell they wanted to do if they were. Well, we don't need to get. Yeah, and I here. mean, you have an you have an MBA, and you know, I. I sure do. So is I it, sure we, do. We, we could be at a hedge fund right now. <laughs> well, you could be. You thought you were bad at math. <laughs> I got out of business school and went into sales. So that's also very valuable skill at hedge funds, though. Sales at hedge funds. Yeah, I think actually, money and stuff. yeah, I think mm-hmm. they actually do even better. You hear that, Bobby Axelrod? I need I need a job. Okay, so let's come back to lessons from the book. I don't go to brothels, as previously established, and I just want to restate that. I don't surf big waves, but how might I be taking too much risk in my life? Well, maybe you're not taking too much risk. I think, you know... Or how am I taking too little risk? Well, there's no shame in risk aversion. I Mm -hmm. think people, especially people in finance, often say, my clients don't take enough risk, and I don't know if that's always true. But I think, you know, maybe you could be taking risk better, mm-hmm. which is, are you taking risks that are getting you closer to your goal? Mm-hmm. Are you taking more risks than you need to take? Or are you taking just enough? Mm-hmm. I don't What's my goal? i got to figure that out. I think you're pretty close. That's it. I think you want to meet people. You want to tell jokes. You're doing that. We're doing, yeah, that. We're trying, doing that right now. We're doing it. It's interesting that when you say that, I think through, okay, well, what is my goal? What sh- sh- I should have more clarity on exactly what I want. And I have a vague idea about mm-hmm. it. And, you know, I want to move forward. But if I have risk to allocate, how should I be allocating it to get there faster, more efficiently, on a more consistent basis? Everybody should be thinking about that, whatever their goals are, whether it's yeah. telling jokes or having a better relationship with their kids or whatever. It is, but it's not an easy thing. I mean, people, there's a reason why people spend a lot of money on life coaches and therapists. Mm-hmm. It's often to clarify what they want. Is that insurance or clarity? In theory, it's clarity, but I think in practice, it's insurance. Yeah, just to make them feel better about... Or, or not face up to the fact that they're not really clear on their goals. Mm-hmm. They're like consultants in the sense that you already have a strategy and you hire somebody to confirm what your strategy should be. Yeah. Interesting. But it doesn't need to be that way. In theory, they're supposed to, they're supposed to give you the tough love. Should I try to minimize uncertainty in my life? And if so, how? You can, I mean, but you have to be careful that there's always some that remains. Mm-hmm. I mean, you as I was talking about, like the military, they want to they want to reduce all the risk whenever they go into any situation. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is when you assume you've got everything covered, there's always something that crops up. But I want to be clear that that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to minimize uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you get rid of ninety percent of your uncertainty, that's a lot better than not doing it. I mean, I think a lot of people critique financial models because they don't reduce uncertainty to zero. But even if they get rid of 10% of it, that's a lot better than not. You just have to be understand that there's still that little bit that remains. Where do you see the greatest risks that humanity is bringing onto itself? Well, I mean, I guess climate. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a huge risk that is really hard to quantify. Mm-hmm. And I, it's unfortunate because I think that's why there's so many doubters is that the risk is definitely there and it's enormous, 
but it's really hard to get precision around it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why there's so much room for debate. And on the other hand, people who trout certainty about the fact the planet's going to explode in 10 years, which probably also isn't true. So, I mean, that's a big one. I sometimes worry about financial risk. I think it's very popular now with debt and inflation to say that these are things that are never, ever going to be a problem ever again. <laughs> right. And like, I agree that, you know, there's no reason to like hike up rates to, you know, 5% or to like go undergo austerity. But, you know, one thing as a pension economist, my big bugaboo is that we don't include pension obligations when we think of debt. Mm. Anyway, these are actually often senior to debt. Right. You know, pensioners get paid before anyone. I think this is the one lesson we have in life. They'll get paid before bondholders, and they're definitely going to get paid more than people who want things like schools and bridges. Right. So Luxuries like schools and bridges. Yeah. They're, they're the first ones cut, always. Right. Sure. And then bondholders, and then pensioners. That's pensioners never see anything cut, yet we don't count it as debt. That also plays into inflation. We're also making these really long-term obligations, often indexing them to inflation. So I do worry, too, that people are very cavalier about debt, not counting the huge debt that we've also have that not, we're not counting and assuming that interest rates are going to stay low forever because they have been that way for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think one thing you learn when you study finance for a long time is, you know, everything always comes back. <laughs> yeah. Someday it will. Right. And if interest rates go up to 7%, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Oh my gosh. Yeah, like we like time. the whole economy. I, this is the thing that I think worries me a lot is that the economy has largely become structured around low interest rates. Right. And w this is just how people think. I mean, people like our age, like honestly have no memory of high interest rates or inflation. Right. And they just assume this is the new normal. They even say this is the normal. Like I'm reading op-ed after op-ed saying inflation is no longer a problem. Mm, I remember the misery index. Yeah. It's, it's how Reagan got elected. And soon I'll be making another reference to remind you how old I am. So this has been a really interesting conversation. I really appreciate you making the time. What have you learned from the book so far? What, how does it feel to be a published author? And are you excited about maybe doing another one? You know, the book comes out and everyone's like, are you going to write another one? And you're like, oh my God, no, that was so much work. <laughs> but then everyone says you start getting a hankering. I think it's like pregnancy. It's like, oh God, this was it. But then like people crave children. Sure. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm starting. I'm going to tweet that. <laughs> people crave children. It's It's been, you know, a month now and I'm starting to be like, you know, that was really fun. And I really liked everyone I met and I really enjoyed meeting people in the process. So yeah. I had a really great time writing it, as you can tell. Mm -hmm. Like I got to meet cool people and go cool places. So I'm yeah. like, I could do that again. Right on. Where can our listeners find out more about you, Allison? I have a website, allisonschrager.com. S-C-H-R-A-G-E-R. Yes. And you're still contributing to Quartz regularly? I am. Yes. I'm still a staff writer at Quartz. So QZ.com. QZ.com. I usually have at least one story up a week. All right. The name of the book is An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Thank you to author Allison Schrager for your time. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you, Allison, for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay, so here's the thing I learned when I was done with that interview. Afterwards, having consumed several bottles of water during our interview, I needed to find a restroom. And as I mentioned, we were in the offices of her publisher portfolio. And what do people do in a publisher as well? There's people that do PR there. There's people that probably do sales there. And there's an awful lot of editors. And what do editors do? They read all day. And so what do you not want to do to an editor who's reading? You don't want to interrupt her. But I'm such a clown that as I walked out of the conference room, I went to the first cubicle on my right where a woman was clearly reading in retrospect. She was obviously reading. She had headphones on. 
the subtle, not too subtle message of which was, please don't disturb me. I'm not here to help you find a bathroom. I have only been doing publishing for long enough to get this gosh darn cubicle. Someday I'll have an office with a door where knucklehead podcast interviewers will not be able to find me to ask me where the bathroom is. But guess what I did? I interrupted her and asked her to use the bathroom. I didn't ask her to use the bathroom. I asked where the bath that's now see now this sounds like a really weird story and it's not i just meant to say that i'm sorry to whoever that editor was whose afternoon i interrupted and i probably ruined whatever manuscript or proposal you were reading was maybe it was mine i don't know anyway hey folks i'm glad you joined me today thank you very much for your time if you enjoyed today's episode and any of these episodes i'd be grateful if you would go to itunes or wherever you listen to this awesome podcast and give us a rating, five stars, if you can bring yourself to do that morally, and write a review. The reviews are very helpful in uh, having the uh, search engines point themselves at this podcast, and thus will um, increase downloads by millions, and, and thus make this a wildly profitable venture. Hey, I hope you're having a great day. Keep it going.